Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Michael Gould, Associate Vice President of Interoperability Strategy at CEO Omega. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. So, Michael, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is to give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So, Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you, Matt. So, folks, my name is Michael Gould. I'm Associate Vice President of Interoperability Strategy, as Matt said. I have responsibility for our go-to-market strategy and partnerships um, and some bearing on product um, that um, our health unity portfolio of interoperability products for payers and providers uh, offers uh, from our, our Z Omega company. So, Michael, what first got you into the healthcare industry? So, I first got into it uh, through the pharmaceutical uh, avenue with uh, an interest in biochemistry and drug interactions uh, at, uh, at you know young age, you know, even before college. And uh, that led me to a focus on the patient later on in my career and a move over to the provider side. And then also... Uh, at that point, got involved in telemedicine and health information exchange, which then uh, opened up uh, a path in the payer side. And as interoperability moved into an implementation mode in most uh, last few years, that's where I got into the uh, the vendor side and I've come to Z Omega. So kind of given all that experience, I know kind of the focus of our discussion today is going to be prior authorization. Um, you know, so maybe to help frame it up, can you just provide a definition of what prior authorization actually means and kind of how it has operated historically? So prior authorization, um, I don't have an official definition of it, but uh, Mike Gould's definition of it is the advanced process for a provider to get an authorization from uh, a patient's payer. And that is not to be confused with uh, the approval of a claim, but it's to um, ensure best practice uh, from clinical quality perspective and patient outcomes perspective, as well as uh, an opportunity to manage costs for the patient and uh, prior auths depend on evidence-based medical guidelines uh, developed out of clinical best practice. So it's, um, it's really intended to ensure that patient outcomes are, are maximal and reduce the risk for providers that claims would be denied in, in the end. So kind of with that aim, you know, what is what are the actual mechanics of submitting for a prior authorization? So the mechanics really depend on providers taking the initiative uh, to reach out to a payer and find out whether a prior auth is required in the first place. And then in the case where prior authorization is required, um, 
to submit a request and the the payer will typically respond with information requirements that are needed to support the medical necessity and also for payers to apply administrative rules to make a determination as to whether an authorization is approved or pended for further review or denied. And you know, the denial can uh, lead to the provider um, uh, requesting further review uh, so that ultimately the, uh, the request to, to perform the, the service or to uh, procure the item for the patient uh, would be approved. From kind of that review perspective, you know, what is or what's the process for the review? Kind of what information is considered, and you know who within the payer is actually doing that review? Like, what type of level is it? A professional or is it just regular staff? Uh, you know, I think kind of helping further level set will definitely be beneficial mm-hmm. to conversation. Yeah. So on the payer side, uh, it's uh, an expert staff of both clinicians and administrative folks. So nurses and doctors uh, who have uh, credentials in specialty areas, for for instance, Um, taking oncology, for instance, payers will employ oncologists and nurses with oncology experience so that their uh, knowledge and experience can be applied to the review so that it's an expert review. Likewise, they also have administrative professionals that are expert in uh, teasing out the specific benefits that um, a patient or a member may have under their coverage and to ensure that um, the uh, particular health plan that the the patient's covered by uh, does have the benefit uh, available to that person uh, to cover them so that there's no out-of-pocket or limited out-of-pocket cost, um, or to know what that out-of-pocket cost is um, in providing transparency to the patient. So kind of with that you know, background information on what the prior author is and how it has been intended to operate, you know, as the experience has grown with it, what are the pros that have been observed and what are the kind of the negatives or the cons that have been observed at the same time? So pros, uh, in the pros column, um, providers can expand their knowledge and practice to the broader, uh, to the knowledge that's available in the broader medical community um, and deliver higher quality care uh, at lower costs even, uh, for the patient. Um, unfortunately, the cons in the cons column is that the prior auth process has been largely a manual and uh, it, even with electronic processes has also been largely a paper-based process um, that haven't kept pace with other clinical processes that have advanced um, with standards-based faster processes that have moved near to real time with electronic information exchange and appropriate automation. So today we'll see fax is largely used. um, And even with electronic fax, um, you know, there's the the, the precedent of paper fax where one party will 
send it over to the other party and it might just sit there waiting for someone to pick it up. And that time lost is translates to delays for the patient and the provider in de delivering uh, timely and quality care. And kind of given some of those time inefficiencies and really just, you know, I think as you were saying, process inefficiencies by having it still be so manual, you know, how has that con potentially contributed to frustrations or tensions between payers and clinicians? So frustrations have really mounted through these delays in care. Uh, and it's really been brought on by these mismatches in the payer and provider information exchange that supports prior authorization determinations. So questionnaires from payers specify what clinical information is needed to make the determinations and delays in getting the right questionnaires to the right clinician uh, and the right clinical information in the response from the provider uh, to those questionnaires and, and getting that done in a timely uh, and comprehensive fashion. Uh, largely, it's been a series of phone calls, voicemails, and miscommunication between providers and payers um, that um, it's kind of like they're talking at each other than, rather than talking with each other. And kind of given those you know, frustrations, and now you know, it feels like in the past couple of years, media attention has also kind of increased when it comes to prior authorization. You know, I guess from the broader media coverage, you know, what is it getting right or wrong, and how is that kind of impacting the interplay uh, between all the players when it comes to prior auths? I guess the, the lack of an in-depth <clears throat> review demonstrates um, an inappropriate implementation of automation and you know the pressures of turnaround times uh, that are enforced on prior authorization requests. Um, well, <clears throat> when the process fails and times out, uh, inappropriate determinations are the risks of these time box processes. Um, and that's where uh, expert review can be minimized or even lost. Um, and, you know, this can be addressed by, you know, putting a checkpoint into the process so that at an appropriate interval uh, within the mandated turnaround time, uh, expert review could be accomplished. So, and when we're talking about expert review, kind of, you know, and I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, that, that review process on the payer side is the mix of the expert, both a clinical expert and then you know, kind of the administrative policy expert who understands the, the terms of the patient's individual policy. But kind of focusing on that clinical side, you know, from a typical perspective, like how much time do they usually get for the review and kind of how much information are they mm -hmm. uh, receiving to conduct the review? So I believe for routine uh, prior authorization requests that, um, from the time of the request being submitted to the payer, uh, the payer has 14 days to make a, a determination. There are expedited uh, requests that have to be completed within 72 hours. And I believe there's, there's other cases where there's emergencies that have to be done in 24 hours. Because the, the frustrations are known in the prior authorization process, uh, doctors are, are great at workarounds. 
So they've figured out ways to um, address the delays, but it's been largely um, spot solutions and have been inconsistent. But um, they do make, you know, doctors are interested in delivering quality care, the doctors that are delivering the care, the doctors that are involved in the reviews. So they really do, they are dedicated to making sure that um, the the reviews get done in a timely fashion. Um, so they, they, in many cases, do work together on that. Yeah, and um, kind of that timely fashion, I think, as you're saying, that it's, um, you know, those time constraints certainly have an impact. Because, you know, I think, you know, as you're implicitly saying, you know, no one's intentionally trying to do anything that's going to have a detrimental impact on patient care. Um, And it seems like that might be potentially get lost in kind of the messaging when both sides are fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, there's still room for improvement. Um, You know, there's also the matter of volume of prior authorizations that um, providers have to submit. And it's a big difference when a provider has uh, the support staff um, at a hospital or a larger group practice versus a smaller or individual group practice um, where you know they're they're more resource constrained. So you know that's that's where the challenges come in as well. Yeah, no, and I think that raises a great point of you know the resource can uh, complications can arise on both sides of the the equation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think as you're pointing out, certainly among the smaller practices, you know, they, the resource constraints there apply across the board, probably to most things that they're doing. And it, you know, it's tough if you're having to devote a significant amount of time to any one specific process, because then it's uh, shortchanging so many other areas. Mm-hmm. And you know, although the medical policies and rules that are applied to prior authorization requests, not every clinical case is the same. There are complicating factors that have to be considered, and sometimes those those are um, you know we we talked about getting into the weeds and uh, down rabbit holes, and you know those complications make for very unique patient cases that take extra time and um, input for uh, appropriate review. Yeah, no, kind of. I think the, the that ends up being a consistency theme across a lot of areas in healthcare, which is it's, you know, you try to create these generalized standards and procedures, mm-hmm. but, you know, individualism definitely arises in almost every scenario as well. Right. Um, and for, for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Michael Gould of Omega, and we've been talking about kind of the historical approach and process around prior auth or prior authorization. And Michael, I kind of like to shift a little bit and talk about, you know, where do you think prior authorization is going? And in particular, uh, you know, it seems like that is, could be largely driven by, you know, what at the time of this recording is still a proposed rule from uh, CMS and the Department of Health and Human Services around prior authorization. So I guess to help kind of level set the discussion, can you just give us a little bit of a summary of what the proposed rule is trying to accomplish? Sure. And, you know, this this certainly could be an hour long conversation in itself, but I'll try to sum it up quickly that the inter- advancing interoperability and uh, improving prior authorizations proposed rule from CMS focuses on some of the parts of the payer industry that come under the authority of CMS 
And on the prior authorization side, they're recommending specific fire standards in something called a PAR-DD API, Prior Authorization Requirements Discovery and Decision API. Um, they're also asking for payers to report uh, annually on items and services that require prior authorization. Uh, for example, posting that list of items and services on their website. Um, they're asking for uh, patient access APIs to be expanded to include prior authorization statuses and decisions so that the patient can know where they are with their prior authorization process for the services they're receiving. For provider adoption, there are measures and associated incentives um, that are also recommended in the proposed rule. And that's really to drive provider adoption. Um, largely the work is going to be on payer and provider uh, technical teams, uh, both on the, the systems that payers use and the electronic medical records that providers use. And another uh, provision of this rule also includes uh, something called the Provider Access API. And that's so that um, providers will have access to relevant clinical information that payers have on their patients so that uh, patients and payers and providers can all be to, extent, to an extent on the same page with the clinical information that um, they have about the patient. There's also a request for information in the proposed rule that gets to the national infrastructure called TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, and how that could also impact and improve prior authorization and advance interoperability. So it seems like kind of a theme from, you know, the, that I think great and, as you said, attempted very brief summary of what <laughs> is, you know, probably a very complex rule. But again, kind of a theme that seems to be emerging out of that is it's really trying to drive adoption and expansion of technology and automation into the prior auth process. So is that a fair summary or a fair pickup on a theme in, in the proposed rule? Yes, and it's also trying to um, drive things into a, a more timely request and response process as well. So kind of what are going to be some of the challenges that you anticipate, you know, again, without knowing the exact specifics of what CMS will actually do, but, you know, what do you anticipate as the challenges of implementing, um, you know, the variety of requirements that you were just summarizing? So I think the, the first thing that needs to be clarified is that the rule as proposed is calling for all items and services that require prior authorization uh, to be in scope of, of this rule. So they do uh, exclude prescription drugs, even those that might be covered under the medical benefit as proposed. Um, but the payer community um, is not necessarily new to FHIR standards and implementing FHIR APIs um, based on the interoperability rule from 2020 uh, that provided for patient access. Um, so I think it's also, you know, that learning curve is, is still out there that payers and providers will have to get on the same page for 
implementing fire APIs um, and uh, the scale of it, but also that um, it's going to take payers and providers starting to work now and through 2024 and 25 to be ready for the effective date for this. So kind of as you just highlighted, you know, like there have been efforts to drive broader technology use and, you know, and, you know, I think even right from the beginning of the conversation talked about interoperability and that it's uh, been a topic that's been floating around for a while, you know, so what are some of the, you know, kind of what are the, I guess, hindrances of, you know, broader interoperability and maybe also where does it actually stand? You know, like, is it actually farther along than popular opinion might have? So I think the regulation um, is is moving along at a pace that is uh, indicative of <clears throat> the contribution of industry to the adoption of standards. So uh, CMS and ONC as well, uh, with the information blocking rule and also the certification rule that just came out, um, are are proposing feasible regulations based on their interaction with industry and how industry is developing and adopting fire APIs and fire apps. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a good balance and the challenges are going to be, you know, continuing to scale it um, and other aspects that are not necessarily related to um, fire uh, standards themselves. Uh, such as uh, authentication and security, as well as having uh, directory services so that um, different organizations can find each other and their uh, their APIs and their server endpoints uh, to actually make the connections um, in uh, an interoperable landscape that's not immune to uh, the business changes such as uh, consolidation uh, in in healthcare. And so, with those considerations in mind, do you feel that there are areas where the proposed rule either fell short or didn't give appropriate attention to a particular uh, kind of problem or uh, concern around both kind of the prior auth and interoperability aspects? Well, I I'm I'm not necessarily a critic of of um, the proposed rule. I think, uh, again, because we've been uh, going pretty much hand in hand with CMS participating with uh, organizations, payer and provider, that have been developing standards that are called for in this rule, I think we're in a good place. Um, I think that um, CMS has been wise to recommend rather than require the uh, fire standards for prior authorization, for example. Um, and they've been very clear that in the future, they will um, require fire API standards as they continue on their trajectory towards maturity. Um, I think that uh, another aspect is that this um, regulation also sets the foundation for fire APIs uh, and more timely exchange, but prior authorization processes may look very different in the future once we have this foundation in place. And um, interoperability is uh, a reality rather than 
um, just a vision in this part of um, the uh, provider and administrative space. It's a kind of um, building off what you said. It's you know like how quickly do you think you know once the rule comes into effect you know. And I think you said it's, you know, official compliance doesn't necessarily have to happen for, wouldn't necessarily have to happen for a couple of years. But how quickly do you think organizations will be able to move to really start satisfying and meeting the standards and then hopefully exceeding it? Because I think, as you were saying, you know, there there seems to be flexibility built into it to, to account for changing, you know, optimistically positive changes within the industry um, mm-hmm. that would be kind of spurred by the rule. So I, I think that um, I, I fully expect that CMS will likely produce a final rule this year, uh, which will give uh, industry the um, a realistic shot at um, working over the next couple of years to make that effective date. Um, I think that um, the, and I'm sorry, can you, re, re, um, can you restate the question? I think I may have gone off. Yeah, no, so one, I think you started to answer, which is, you know, you think that if CMS can finalize this year, that mm-hmm. it will give the industry a shot to, to reach compliance within the, you know, the intended timeframes. But do you think they'll be able to do it more quickly than, you know, is required, you know, understanding that oftentimes when you come, when it comes to compliance, you wait up until the final deadline because that's, I think, how a lot of us uh, yeah. end up operating, either intentionally or unintentionally. But also, right. kind of, regardless of the time frame, do you think it provides that good springboard to have flexibility and drive further improvements that um, are maybe just spurred by the rule? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think this is really, um, the proposed rule is is a starting point. Um and it's a continuation um, in terms of advancing interoperability. It's definitely a continuation from the final rule of 2020. Um, and the uh, improving prior authorizations piece of it is is a starting point. So there's certainly room to continue to improve. And the, the opportunity to do real-time uh, information exchange to support prior authorization processes leaves the door open for incredible potential in the future for uh, how we might do this better. Yeah, no, and kind of, as you said, just leaving that door open for great potential and great improvement, I think is actually, unfortunately, going to have to be the the last final thought here and and kind of optimistic statement, because believe it or not, we are already out of time. Um, I want to thank my guest, Michael Gould, for a great conversation today. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, and thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect, connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. Mm-hmm.